Hi there. Be versus do, and people are everything. This is going to be an interesting episode. This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. We have Doug Robinson as our guest today. He's the managing partner of DryFly Capital. He's the adjunct professor of finance at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he is a former candidate for the governor of the state of Colorado. Doug, thanks for a losing candidate. Well, <laughs> that's why we're here today. <laughs> well, you have a deep and varied background. Let's just dive into your background and kind of talk about the journey. Absolutely. So I guess at the top, I would say who I am is I'm a father of five and married to the same woman for 30 years. And uh, so, and the kids have kind of turned out okay. We've got our oldest is 28. The youngest is junior in high school. So we have one at home still. So that's what I'm most proud of. But along the way, I've done a lot of things. I've been an entrepreneur, started businesses. I've managed larger companies, ran for political office. And now we have a independent private equity firm and we have four portfolio companies. Looks like today we're about to have a fifth and where we have purchased companies and installed management and are running those companies as well. So I've had a great life born in Michigan Got to New York out of college, uh, spent 10 years in New York and a little over 20 years in Colorado. I think about that, I was going to go classic underachiever. <laughs> it's funny, you know, I think about the journey. When you came out of college, what was your skill set that you got in college that took you to New York City? I discovered uh, along the way in college that I liked numbers, I liked finance. I had an internship on the bond desk at First Interstate Bank in Los Angeles. So I interviewed and found a way to get back to New York and took a job as an investment banker, as an analyst at Dean Witter in Two World Trade Center. And I didn't realize at the time I was signing up for about 80 to 90 hour average weeks. So that was quite an education. And you know, as a credit analyst in the bond market, those guys go deep in the balance sheets to make sure the credit quality sorted out. And I think that more about a company from their balance sheet than perhaps the equity side does, in my opinion. Yeah. Balance sheet tells you everything. Balance sheet, cash flow, income statement, that's usually where people start. That's really the least important of the three statements, but they're all important. And so you were Dean Witter, which is Dean Witter. no longer with us. Yeah. Dean Witter is now part of Morgan Stanley. Then I went back to business school. I went to Columbia Business School in New York with an emphasis in finance. Came out, joined a media company in their corporate development group, Maxwell McMillan, McMillan Publishing and so on. Helped to buy, I was on a team where we bought 23 companies over a couple of year span. And then I was recruited and I joined a firm called Hambrecht and Quist, which was an early underwriter taking companies public technology companies based in San Francisco. I was in New York, lots of travel back and forth, but we were doing IPOs primarily for emerging internet and technology companies along the way. I was traveling so much, my wife said, wait a minute, is this what we signed up for? And you were married during these days. I was married. We just had our third child. And out of the blue, I had a new assignment in Colorado. And I'd lived in Colorado as a kid for a couple of years. My wife grew up basically at the Air Force Academy. Her father was a professor at the Air Force Academy. We loved Colorado. She came out with me. It was one of those days in October where it was bluebird sky, yeah. bluebird sky, 65 degrees and the mountains, snow on the mountains. And we said, we got to move here. And sometimes happens in life. Literally two days later, a friend of mine calls and said, there's a recruiter that just called me and there's a firm in Denver that wants to start a technology investment banking practice. Would you be interested? 
And your wife said, absolutely. She said, absolutely. So I was out the next week and I met with them. And then you're figuring out, is the glass half empty or half full? It's not New York. It's a different opportunity. But we decided to move. And that was just about 23 years ago. And I came out and I was running corporate finance. And then all of the equity division of a firm here, Hannafin Imhoff, determined that the day of the regional investment bank, full service investment bank was coming to an end. And we sold that firm to Stiefel Nicholas. Then I started my own company with a few other folks that I'd met called St. Charles Capital. We grew that to be the leading independent investment bank in Denver, sold that to KPMG in 2014, spent three years with KPMG, and then decided it was time to try to do something in politics. So 14 months I spent running for governor, lost in the June primary of June of last year, and then joined up with a longtime friend of mine to start a private investment firm and to look at various companies that we think we could bring our expertise to, to improve, and then got a teaching job at the University of Colorado. So that's my story. I think about that dry fly capital. So in order to be part of this firm, do you have to be able to fly fish? You have to, yes. <laughs> Just got to make sure I understand, you know, because it's not like Bass Plug Firm or anything else. You know, I, I think about your journey. And so you come out of school with a math bent. And you go and you go into the credit world and start doing analysis. And so you're working for major corporations. And there's a point where that changes, where you're not interested in doing the corporate gig anymore. And you're more interested in getting regional and getting more into details. And then at some point, you decide to start your own business. What was that like? You you go home, you go, hon, you know, I know I've got a really good job and doing this, that, and the other, and I'm progressing but I want to leave that behind and I want to start my own firm. Yeah. So I think a couple of things play into that. So some of that transition was driven by a desire that I grew up with to have a balanced life and to have corporate success, but also a family and personal success and community involvement and to give back to the community. And I found in New York that I couldn't make all of that happen. I'm not saying that people can't in New York, but I was in a firm, great firm, where everyone that I respected above me had put their career first over everything else for a long period of time. And there are consequences to that. And they were almost all divorced or mistresses or kids off at boarding school. Not that those are bad, you know, I mean, I didn't want those things. So I made a choice to move to Colorado where I thought I could have a more balanced life. And it showed up for me in the first week. And I'll tell you just an anecdotal story. In New York, when you meet somebody out at a social gathering, somebody will introduce themselves and they'll say, well, what do you do? And you know exactly what they mean. And that, you know, are you in investment banking or on the credit desk or the derivatives or public finance? So you talk about that. So I'm I'm out here in Denver the very first week and we're at a social gathering and somebody says, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm corporate finance. He said, no, no, what do you do? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, do you fly fish? (laughs) Do you ski? (laughs) Do you rock climb? Do you bike? So it was a more balanced life. And that's what I wanted. So I found there was a trade-off. I wasn't doing those deals that were being written about on the front page of the Wall Street Journal like I had, but ones that were impacting people. And the value of my career, I've been an investment banker, is getting to know the CEOs of these companies. And when they're going through a transaction, either selling their business or raising capital, this is the most important thing to them at that time. And you get to know them intimately well. And often as you get towards the closing of a transaction, you're talking to them three or four times a day 
around details of these transactions. And so I learned that, wow, that would be really fun to be running your own firm. And yes, it takes some risk to do that, but with higher risk, there's higher reward as well. And that I thought that if I gathered myself with the right people around me to start, we could have a successful organization. And we did. And so I made that transition. I think about your comment about talking to the business owner. And you've seen many businesses come to market or form and sell. Yeah, over a hundred. When there are a number of those transactions that didn't finish, you know, came to the table for one reason or another, failed to go through. If you were to look back over those businesses that didn't transact, what would you say the one or two key reasons that they don't transact? Yeah, I would say that by far the overall reason is that people are really unwilling at the end of the day to compromise or to make trade-offs over things. And, and there are some things that you don't compromise, but when you're in a business transaction, sometimes the attorneys get involved and you get mired in the what-if scenarios, and it's a risk allocation discussion, and you can't see a way through that. And so people get tired of the process. They underestimate the extent of due diligence that a buyer wants to do. And at the end of the day, they're not willing to compromise and they walk away from it. So usually that's what happens. Sometimes you see a, a buyer that will retrade a deal at the last minute or something like that, and that'll cause a deal not to happen. But one of the things that we were most proud of at our firm, St. Charles Capital, which we started in 2004, was that over the 10 years that we operated it and sold it to KPMG, our closing ratio was 84%. For the people that don't know, what does that ratio compare to the norm? Ah, the norm's probably less than 50, I would say. So for that, you know, you look at it and for the folks that are going like, I have a business or I'm concerned, or when you were bringing companies to market and when you're looking at them, what were the key things that you would either find or train them in to get ready to sell? Yeah, that's a great question. Before I answer that, you know, the 84% we were successful in close of the difference at 16%, about half of it was financials deteriorated through the sales process. They took their eye off the ball. Where they took their eye off the ball and the numbers went south. And then of that, call it 8%, that was the difference. Half of it was we couldn't find the right buyer or something. And then there's stuff that I'm talking about where people get their egos in the way and they can't seem to get to yes, basically, right? But most of the time we were successful. And so the key things for a smaller business if they're thinking about going to market are really starting to prepare prepare ahead of time. Preparation is everything, right? And so prepare not only the financials and the information that's going to be in a data room, start to think about stuff, but most importantly, prepare to have a management team or a group around you that can follow. If you're the CEO and you're used to doing everything well, maybe you shouldn't be doing everything. You need to be able to say, listen, if I'm out of this business a year after the sale, it can continue and grow without my presence. And so those are the key things I would say. It's interesting. And I've got a little bit of background recently and as a business owner as well. And there's that key difference between having a job and having a business. And for you, you know, you built this business when you first started St. Charles, right? Yes. And how many people did you have in St. Charles? So when we sold it to KPMG, we had 35 investment bankers. So a little under 40 total staff. When you started, how many did you have? Four of us. And I think about the progression and adding staff and passing through the vision and the culture. For the folks that are in a growth curve, what advice would you offer to them about culture and vision and core principles of your firm? 
Yeah. To answer that, I probably need to step back a second and tell you about an experience that I had after I first came to Denver that really changed the way I thought about leadership in business. And I was always highly motivated to get things done. So I'd start my day with a to-do list of things that I wanted to accomplish. And I was running a side of this firm, Hannafin Imhoff, the equity side. I had about 75 employees. And I remember one day in particular where I had this list of things that I needed to accomplish. And three times I got interrupted by people knocking on my door saying, hey, I've got this issue with a client or with this other guy on the sales desk or other things. And I, I was actually kind of aggravated, like, wow, they're taking time away from what I really need to get done. And I was stewing on that over the weekend. And I happened to run into a very experienced executive that kind of mentored me a little bit. And I was sharing with this. He says, you got it all wrong. That's the most important time of your day is when you are leading and listening and lifting up other people. And your job as a leader is not to get all that task done, but it is in, to inspire other people to reach their potential. So a light went off in my mind that, wow, that is true leadership is not how many things did you get done, but how do I help other people get inspired about the vision, where we're going and reach their potential and that we're going to be better off with lots of people doing it than the energy that I can put into it. And so that was a real critical event for me. So when we started St. Charles Capital, one, I made sure that I had partners that I was with, the four of us, that we had common belief around people and also that we had two things. We had trust in each other's competence and trust in each other's integrity and that we wanted to build a culture and a firm that was based on doing the right thing and no conflicts and serving our clients. And we had a vision and we would empower people to achieve those things. So those are the things that I think helped us to be successful was that we had a pretty clear vision as to what we wanted to be, the leading independent investment bank in Denver, and a roadmap of as to how we were going to get there, which was different than the others. At the time, there were regional bankers that were really industry agnostic, but more experts on the M&A process or raising capital. And we said, we're going to be experts in that, but we're also going to bring deep industry expertise like you got from New York. When you went to New York as the CEO of Boeing, you didn't just talk to a generalist, you talked to the transportation, the airline guy, right? Who's following all the other airlines. And so that industry expertise allows you to know what's going on in that particular industry, who's buying, who's selling, what are the key metrics, how are the valuations? And so we brought that to the lower middle market. I'm really the first ones to do that. So those things and combined with our focus on people allowed us to have success and to grow and to scale our business. And then eventually we felt that the right thing to do was to put that in the hands of a larger firm who could take it from where we had it. I think about, you're talking about niche market work and being an expert. And so what I think about then is business development. If you're bringing in niche market experts, this is not New York City, this is not LA and not San Francisco. And so you have to go in order to support that hire and that expertise, you have to find business. So what did you guys do to try a business development? You know, and we would task people, we would say, okay, when they got to a certain level, we're going to give you this particular area. And so, you know, I was in charge of the technology practice at our firm, which was a bigger area. And then we would actually drill it down even further than that. I would say, okay, you're going to take human resources software. And you're going to become the expert in that area. And usually we built it off of a success that we had with a particular client. 
where we had basically gotten into something and we've been able to sell successfully that business. And so we'd been out talking to people and we leveraged that as a way to go and talk. So for example, if you're the CEO of a human resources software company and the competitor of yours that you know, and you've been at trade shows and competed against and so on, you know that he just sold his business. Are you going to take a call from the advisor that just completed that transaction? You, You probably will. And we wouldn't share any confidential information that we were required not to under NDA, but you could certainly share about how much interest there was in the marketplace and what were the key metrics and the key factors. And you had some real expertise that that CEO benefited from. And so we would leverage that expanding into a new area. You were monetizing your effort after you learned. Yeah, monetizing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we called it momentum marketing is what we called it. Yeah, get in and go deep. And for me, generally, I have an idea of where an episode might go, which is awesome because I was thinking about your original lead-in comment, people are everything. And you were talking about the to-do list that you had in the morning. And so you go, I've got these to-do and my people keep getting in the way of my to-dos. And then you go, you know what, if I can train my people up and spend time with them, did your to-do list change? Absolutely. So the to-do list shrinks, right? So you have 20 things on it and you're thinking that you've got to get all these things done. And then when you realize that other people can do it maybe more effectively than you can, and that your job is really to inspire them to reach their potential and give them opportunity and hold them accountable, then your to-do list shrinks and it shrinks substantially. One of the guys that I read a lot about at the time was Jack Welch, who was the longtime CEO of GE and how he managed that huge enterprise and often didn't have much to do. <laughs> you know, he's a, he's a scratch golfer, yeah. right? Yeah. Because he was able to really train and inspire and lead his people. And the amount of money that they put, that's another key takeaway that they put into training and giving people the skills, which is not just the skills, but also the confidence to be able to do big things. And then you reward them financially and otherwise. And your to-do list gets much smaller. So in thinking about when you're running St. Charles and you've got this massive growth of personnel and at some point in time, in 10 years, it's sold to another firm. What was the transition to the folks that were working there when you were getting ready to sell? Because I'm sure it wasn't a secret. And so what was the reaction and anticipation by the employees knowing that you were going to take and transition to the next stage. There was a lot of concern around it. And rightfully so. Yeah. And I think rightfully so. And we had something special. I mean, in the whole time that we ran our firm, we never lost an employee to a competitor. We had some that had personal reasons where they would change or their spouse was transferred and they moved to another city or something like that. But we never lost anybody to a competitor. So we felt really good about that. So there was anxiousness. I mean, we were a, a very small firm, less than 40 people being acquired by a 21,000 person firm in the United States and over 100,000 worldwide. So we were going to be a small piece of that. And there was some concern and in hindsight, rightfully so. <laughs> I think about it for you, having been around the track with many businesses going through the process. So it gave you a unique perspective when you were getting ready to transition. In looking back, top one or two things that you did really, really well, and the top one or two things that you wish you'd done differently. Do you have any of those? We underestimated a few things. I'll tell you the things we didn't do well. We underestimated the difference in culture. 
culture is really so important. And the other thing is compensation. So those two things, culture and compensation, drive a lot of services businesses, which we were, right? We were expertise. We were selling our brain power, our intellectual power, and the people that we had hired. And so we had a model that was like a lot of smaller firms that was a bit larger beta, if you will. You know what I mean? If you did, had a really good year, you got paid really well. If you didn't have a good year, you didn't make so much money. The larger firm had more of a, you're going to make more. All of us got big increases in our salaries when we went in there, but the bonus component of it was going to be smaller, right? So there was less of an opportunity to really hit that home run or knock it out of the park. And that had impact. And then a culture that was less risk-taking. And I'm not saying one is bad and one is good. There's no judgment. It's just different. And when you're a firm of over 20,000 people, there's more consequence to screwing up than getting that new opportunity. You'd rather not screw up. Yeah. More people can leverage up on stupid with 20,000. Yeah. So we didn't understand the extent of the hundred in-house attorneys and the 50 people in risk management, which is appropriate for sometimes a large firm, right? That's all about their reputation and everything else. But it was a culture that was a little bit of a mismatch. So what happens is you start to lose some of your people. They decide that they'd rather be in a different environment than that. So that was difficult. It's an insight because you're unique in that you've seen lots of businesses come to market and you've seen lots of successful transactions occur. And so, you know, you look across that and you go, you have the benefit of looking over lots of shoulders. And so you go, okay, I kind of get this. And, you know, I'm getting ready to go to market with my business. And then you go through and you go, even knowing what I know, it's still a challenge. It was still a challenge. I'll just tell you another thing that was kind of a big deal. And we didn't think of it at the time, but we had just the physical layout of our office. We had a nice office and we had people in offices with closed door and other things and so on. And we went over there and their approach was we're all in bullpens. You know what I mean? That's just how we do it. No matter how senior you are, you're in a bullpen, you know, with a divider and so on, you know, and around it. So that was a challenge for some of our people. And I was thinking at the time, wow, who cares? I don't really care what my office looks like and so on, but some people do. And it was a challenge. So just differences, but some firms have, I mean, that's just a culture that they had. You know, I look at Cisco, even the CEO of Cisco Chambers was in a bullpen. I mean, that's the way they ran it and it was hugely successful. So it isn't judgment, it's just differences. When you sold the business, was it sold the business? Did you stick around for a period of time? I stayed for three years, yeah. From going from an owner to going from a three-year, I'm presuming, earnout. Right. What was the three-year earnout period like? Yeah. So there were some really fun, great things about it. I enjoyed going to, you know, all the training and the resources and going to conferences where there were thousands of my colleagues, you know what I mean? And having great speakers come and all of that sort of resources that you have being part of a big firm and being able to take clients to the masters and, you know what I mean? A client to meet with Phil Mickelson. I mean, I never could have made that happen, right? So those sorts of things that were real positive. And then there were some some challenges around, you know, not being in charge and having oversight, which was totally appropriate. People making decisions about what business we were going to pursue and what we weren't and and some of those sorts of things. So it was a, like everything in life, there are pluses and minuses. I wanted to circle back a little bit you know, you've been married to the same woman for since day one, and you have five kids in your family. Yeah. And you look at a successful business operation, 
And when you look at your family, what is the crossover on that you would think either family principles or business principles that somebody could learn from you in having a successful family, for lack of a better term? I think the key things in both are really the ability to listen and to not think that you have all the answers and to validate the worth of the other people. And as a parent or in a relationship, any relationship, really at its heart, business and leadership is about relationships. And that's the same thing about a family. And the husband and wife in a traditional family are the leaders of the family. And you make decisions together, you communicate with each other, you're honest to each other, you respect each other, you're faithful to each other. You do those sorts of things that are just the basis of a long-term sustainable relationship when there's lots of pressures in today's society not to do that. I have a grandfather who was very successful and my parents divorced when I was young and he was really in a lot of ways like my father, even though he was my mother's father. He used to say, the best thing you can do for your kids is to love their mother. That's by far the best thing you can do. And that comes with work. It just doesn't happen. You have to work at it. And then we try to love our kids and teach them kind of the right things, but let them govern and make decisions and fail and on their own, but be there to support them. You know, in the beginning, you had a comment, be versus do. Yeah. So how did you see be versus do? either play through the business environment or play through your family? Yeah. So in the business environment, it was really around what kind of a leader do I want to be and what characteristics or values do I put forward that I want my team? I'm responsible as a leader primarily to my team and then to the customers and others. But how do I model that? And it's the same thing in a family. A father is an example to his children. And most of my kids have thought I'm a good example. It's not universal. And it's not all the time. It's not all the time. (laughs) you know. And uh, it shows up in terms of, and I still have those challenges sometimes at home where, you know, I'll have a list of things I want to get done and you have interruptions and you have to be flexible. I saw a t-shirt years ago. It said, parenthood, it's the first 40 years that are the hardest. Yeah. And I think about the husband and wife, And you change through the years, you know, experiences and training and influences, and you learn a reason to fall back in love with your wife again as you change. And then for the kids, you know, my firm belief is not what you say, it's what you do. Because a lot of people say things they don't do. Yeah. It's how you live. It's walking the walk. And the kids notice. Yeah. And for you, you know, there was that point circling back to the business a little bit. So you've done your three-year earnout, and you're going to be done Monday of whatever week it was. Right. And you're not affiliated with your business or the acquiring firm anymore. Yeah. What was that morning like? Well, you think about it. You don't just wait till that morning and then decide what you're going to do. You start thinking about it ahead of time. So as I started coming up on that date, I started thinking about what do I want to do? And I actually had an experience, a former partner of mine that had left our firm and he'd established a CEO coaching practice and lives up in Aspen. I'll give a shout out to him, Peter Fair. And he's fantastic at this. And he has maybe 20 CEOs or high level people that he's coaching at any one time. He'd be fabulous for you to talk to. Actually, he's the oldest person to ever go through the simulated BUDS training, if you know what this is. So some of these SEAL team guys came out And they thought that people would pay $15,000 to go through basically hell week, a week of three hours of sleep and in the surf. And he did it at 53 years old. 
and was on the cover of Outside Magazine a couple of years ago. And he's still with us. He's still with us. And he's a couple of years older. So he called me up and he said, Doug, this is about six months left in my employment contract and so on. And he said, can I come in and visit with you? You may have clients or others that... So I said, sure. And it's a busy day. And that's funny how random things happen that impact your life. And we sat in the conference room right there on 20th floor, uh, Tabor Center downtown or across from Tabor Center, whatever that building is, right downtown Denver. And he said, okay, well, tell me about what you want to do and what's your low risk path What's your high-risk path? I'd always been interested in making a difference in change and had some relatives in my family that had been involved in politics. I'd seen people make a difference at that level. And my grandfather was a three-term governor of of Michigan, the state I grew up. And so I said, you know, high-risk would be to run for governor. And it was the timing where It was, this was in November or so of 2016, I guess, maybe December of 2016. Colorado governor's race was going to be in 2018, but yeah, it takes a while to get ready and gear up and so on. And so, and I had until kind of that next April where I was going to be for sure at KPMG. So I was thinking about what am I going to be doing? So I kind of laid out, you know, well, option one, of course, is to stay working and do this. And then Option two is to maybe get on some boards and maybe teach, which I wanted to do. And option three might be this really crazy thing to do, which would be to try to go run for governor of Colorado. And as we talked through that together in that session, it was just like, I felt like, wow, maybe I should do this. And it was totally out of the box. And I hadn't been elected to public office before. I was elected as a delegate once to the national convention. But And I'd been involved in political stuff on the board of the expenditure finance committee at the, for the Republican Party, some things like that. But I hadn't really run. So I, over there, over the next few months, went back to D.C., talked to everybody I knew, tried to gather information, and finally made a decision to do this. And so started our campaign on April 25th, 2017, and hired a team for 14 months, crisscrossed this state, spoke over 250 times, did uh, dozens of radio interviews and TV interviews, six televised debates, of which they said I was the winner of five of them. And I lost. There were 12 candidates that started. There were four of us that were on the primary ballot on the Republican side and four on the Democrat side. You know, I lost in June. I knew a month or two before that was where I was headed. So that was a really fascinating experience, but painful experience too. So that's what I did. And then I recovered from that and said, okay, what am I going to do next? That's where I am now. I think about highs and lows and and tuition and experience and the expenditure and building the team and going through and trying to make a difference by running for governor. Looking back over that experience, what would you have done differently in hindsight, if anything, other than win? Or not run. (laughs) You know, and and for your family, too, because when you said we run, we decided to run. It's not just you. No, it is a huge effort for everybody. When you put yourself out there publicly like that, everything's fair game to look at or to talk to or whatever. And my kids were absolutely asked about it and so on and involved. And of course, Diane, my wife was speaking with me and at events all the time. And I was gone all the time. I mean, I'd worked hard through my career, but never as hard as this. And the thing that was different was that just about every night of the week, I was speaking somewhere. And it often wasn't down the street. It was in Pueblo or Montrose or Grand Junction or Burlington. 
these are two, three hour drives, you know, I kind of made a rule. If it was three hours or more, I'd stay in a hotel room, but otherwise I prefer my own bed. And I, I had an intern who was a driver for me, you know, and I try to sleep, but you don't really sleep. You know, you have your pillow and we'd come back from those places and then you start again. So physically it was exhausting. There were a few takeaways that I didn't really understand. I didn't understand how the media has changed. And I'm going to use the word been decimated by the internet business model. It used to be even 10 years ago that there were newspapers and reporters in all of these towns around our state and around the country who cared about who was running for office. And you know what? There's virtually nobody now in the print media, right? Because nobody under 35 subscribes to a paper. There isn't the economics there. Just an example, you know, I'm in Lamar, which is a town Southeast Colorado. I'm talking to the guy, he is interviewing me. He says, I'm one of three employees. A year ago, we had 16. And he's concerned. He says, you know, I'm the reporter and everything. And he says, we have a guy who runs the printing press and does all of that. And then we have a guy who does, who's advertising, who tries to get revenue. And he says, that's where it's become. And he says, my focus, he says, what do people read in the paper? High school sports and the obituaries. That's what sells our newspaper in Lamar, Colorado. and. I barely have time to talk with you. And so even the Denver Post, since they were founded, probably every governor's race, they interviewed the candidates. They had a write-up on the finalists for the primary, and they made a recommendation or an endorsement. They didn't do this. It's the first year ever. They never did it. And why did they not do it? They didn't have the resources. They didn't have the team. They didn't have the ability. They're just hanging on by their fingernails. The media business model, they're in a fight for their life. Fight for their life. Same with the TV stations. And so I talked with a guy like Bruce Benson, who uh, ran for office in 1990. He said he had eight or nine reporters everywhere he went, and the same with the other candidates. And they were picking up on inconsistencies or problems or digging into your background or all of this stuff. It's not happening today. So where does the average voter get their information? From paid advertising, right? They're getting it from the candidates because the media is not able to do that work. And so the person who raises the most money has a distinct advantage. And so we're going to see more and more of these self-funding candidates. Jared Polis, our current governor, put in $20 million of his own money, in essence, in my view, by the governorship. How do you compete with that? I think even in this media, that this is podcast. I mean, effectively, it's a radio station. And who controls the content? Typically the guest, but you can have your own newspaper. You can have the YouTube, which is your own TV station. You can have your own blog post, which is your own newspaper. And you're fighting the typical traditional print media is competing against hundreds of those every day, if not thousands. Yeah. You know, and you go, well, there's the lesson. So how does that take now that you've transitioned from St. Charles Capital through the transition of the business and you ran for the governor? There's got to be some, I got to catch up on my sleep before I do something next. And then- you went from there to dry fly. Yeah, yeah. The first thing I did actually was cry. <laughs> it was painful to lose. Well, if you by and large win all your life, you know, you go, I got good kids. I've been successful in business. You know, I've done lots of things really well. And you go, I'm a good guy. Why didn't they vote? Right. And you go, not sure that has a lot to do with it. Right, right. The best person does not always win. I think of what I think I could have done for Colorado and so on. And 
Didn't get that chance. So it was painful to get that black and white. Not you. Not you. I had 52,000 Coloradans that voted for me. That wasn't nearly enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> I failed. I didn't get my message out. And there's it's a whole other thing, all sorts of lessons learned and things that I would have done differently and so on. How would you know, you know, if you'd run for governor three times in Colorado, you know, if you had a history of running for governor and you kind of got the rules, you get it. This is what you do. This is what I learned. But you didn't. You were first time trying to make a difference and you try to bring what you knew and your message and you kind of go, that's not enough. Wasn't enough. So I cried for the first little bit and I like to ride a bike and I went up in the mountains. I did all that sort of stuff. Then I recognized all the deferred maintenance around the house and (laughs) the trees are overgrown, you know, all that stuff. And so I threw myself into that for a while. And and then I started to think about what am I going to do? And I always had this desire to teach and uh, so on. So I called up the local schools and I, I had a relationship with them because we hired some of their graduates, right? And I talked to DU and I talked to CU and they both said, we'd like you to come and to teach a class. And it just worked out. Both are great institutions that it was better for me to do this finance class at CU. So I'm going two days a week to Boulder to teach 30 seniors, CU seniors about corporate finance. That's fun. And then I've had a longtime friend, multiple client, Bob Ogden, who's my partner here at Dry Fly Capital that had started already a, he'd sold his business. I was on his board of directors, helped him and advised him through that process. And he was wanting to invest in other businesses to use the skill set that he had. And he said, let's have lunch. And I'd kept up and so on. And actually his breakfast. And we started talking about it. And I just decided, you know, this would be a lot of fun. And I'm really enjoying it. So basically what we're doing now, which was really fun, is evaluating companies, deciding which ones we want to invest in, and then bringing our networks that we've created, both of us over the years, of investors to invest alongside us into these companies. And then we often recruit in a new leader and we take businesses that have been going for a long time, that have a long operating history that maybe aren't quite optimized and bring in some new energy and some new leadership to try to take them to the next level. And that's a lot of fun. In thinking about many of the baby boomers that might have sold in 2008 due to the market decline, didn't. And so I think many of them are kind of in that slot now, 10 years later, thinking about, "Mm, boy, I don't want to do that again. So maybe I think there's a significant transition problem for many of the baby boomer owned businesses. Would you have the same opinion? And do you see that when you're looking at companies? Yeah, absolutely. And I heard a stat the other day, there's 11 to 12 million baby boomer owned businesses. And probably a number of those are going to transition to family members. But there's still a number that are looking for an exit, right? Where, and we see this all the time, entrepreneur that started the business, you know, I'll just give you an example. One of the businesses that we bought in August, it's called AIA Industries. They're the leading manufacturer of skylights in Colorado. And they're a 10 million plus business, about 80 or so employees. The founder started the business in 1974. And he's got a son and a daughter. One's a doctor, one's an attorney, and they're not interested in dad's business. He cares a lot about the legacy that he's created. He's had this business a long time. So employees are his family. We want to make sure that they're treated right and so on. And so we understand that. And we want to promote that. And so he still has an office at our company and we have a new CEO and he's there kind of as a consultant. 
doesn't have a, a position of authority. And it was funny, the CEO was telling us just a few weeks ago that former owner came in and said, listen, I want to take two weeks of vacation to go on this cruise. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you check with HR before you go. <laughs> I think it's okay. I knew a guy that actually had rented a space after he sold his business, so he had somewhere to go. And you think about this business owner, his routine since 1974 is showing up at work. You know, and you think about the ability for him still to show up at work. So we made that available. It's a little small cost to us. And some of the changes we're making, you know, like we went from, for years, all of his salespeople were on salary. And we said, okay, well, we're going to give you an incentive plan. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> and, and you're going to use a CRM, a customer relationship, you know, and you're going to put in your prospects and you're going to think about the sales process. So there is some change. And with that, if four salespeople and three of them all excited about learning something different and so on, but one, not so much. So. And you kind of go, that's kind of normal. Yeah. People think about when you're acquiring a business, right? And they think, oh, there must be all this magic you do, right? And you go, uh, no, not well, you know, blocking and tackling CRM, you know, incentive plan to incent, you know, behavior. And they go, well, that's not really new, is it? No, but a lot of companies don't. Yeah. We kind of ease into it fairly slowly, but you make those sorts of changes. You try to optimize and use technology and do some things that can help make a business run better, but try to keep that legacy in the culture. When we're acquiring, we're not merging them into another big company or something, you know what I mean, where there's a change of culture. Really, the, we're adopting the culture that has been there, making some tweaks to it, trying to be a little bit, bring some energy to it and some new ideas and try to grow. And a lot of and people fundamentally, you know, my experience is people want growth. They want challenges. They want purpose. They want meaning in what they're doing in their jobs. And so they welcome that. I think about our chat and you and I talked for a very short period of time before you agreed to be on the episode, you know, and I think about your career from bi-coastal work in the big city, coming to Denver and then starting your firm and then trying to take and give back in the community. But you're also now not only with TriFly, but you're doing some nonprofit work. What are you doing in the nonprofit space? Yeah. So along the way, I started three nonprofits all around kids, which has been my passion. I have five of them. It's called Kids Tech. So we founded this maybe 15, 16 years ago when I saw most of my clients were technology companies. A few of us saw that there was this digital divide, kids mostly from disadvantaged backgrounds that didn't have technology skills to really thrive in today's world. And it still persists. It's amazing, even with all the resources that are out there. And so we've taught about 15,000 kids over the years. We're, right now, we're teaching about 800 kids and about 20 schools technology skills. And it's project-based curriculum to really learn how to use Excel or Word or uh, PowerPoint or so on to supplement what they learn in school. So it's really part of jobs today. And they don't have computers at home, most of these kids. You know, we go into schools that are 75% or more free and reduced lunch. So, you know, it's a successful organization. We had our annual dinner. I spoke on Friday at our annual dinner and we had uh, 280 people there at the Ritz-Carlton, and we honored the Daniels Fund, which is one of our supporters and so on. So that's one thing. My wife and I started another nonprofit called uh, Brave Tracks, which was to give opportunities to high school kids. We saw with our kids that 
businesses aren't very integrated into the high schools, maybe more so with the colleges. And there's a lot of kids that would really benefit from having an internship or an experience or connection between business and high schools. But that wasn't how you were in your high school, was it? Did you have shop class? Oh, yeah. Working? All that. And same thing for me. You know, you could take and actually learn a hard skill. Yeah, not so much today. So we started that and we actually merged that into another organization today called Colorado Young Leaders, which is a vibrant nonprofit, which is taking kids and hooking them up to businesses, also service opportunities at the high school level. And they're doing that. And then the one that we kind of stumbled into, which has lately been more of my time, is after marijuana was legalized, commercialized in Colorado, my wife, we'd had in our own extended family some seeing how a kid can get sidetracked through uh, marijuana use. And we were concerned about kids. And my wife went down to the organizing meeting. Governor Hickenlooper put together a panel of 25 to come up with the rules for this new industry. And he had a uh, facilitator come in because there were educators, law enforcement, a lot of people from the industry itself, this new industry, to say, okay, what are our priorities that are going to guide our rulemaking process? Had them rank six. And I can't remember all of them, but you can look this up if you're interested uh, listening to this, Google it. The first was, after they voted, was to create a consumer-friendly experience for the pod enthusiast. And last was protect kids and public safety. So my wife came out of there and said, who's going to be looking out for the kids? And we sat in our living room and we said, okay, we're going to do it. So we started an organization called Smart Colorado, which has been at the forefront. And let me tell you, it's a point of a spear because the marijuana industry has a lot of resources, a lot of money. And we're not saying, we're saying let adults do, in Colorado, it's not about legalization. It's already legal here. It's about let's protect our kids and let's make sure that they are not involved and we're not promoting this drug to our kids. So that's an organization that's a nonprofit that has been both educational as well as lobbied for sensible things like marking the edibles and putting disclosure around how much THC is in the products and and making sure that their dispensaries are over a thousand feet away from schools and some of these sensible things, which people hadn't thought of. And so we had kind of uh, brought this compliance and more education so that we can make sure that this doesn't negatively impact our kids. If people want to reach out to you, how do they find you on social media? Yeah. So you can go to my Facebook, which I still have up and I I need to check it more often, (laughs) which is Doug for Colorado. You can go there. Occasionally I'll tweet, find me on LinkedIn and, you know, Doug Robinson in Denver. You can send me an email or something. Well, Doug, I think we'll be doing another episode because I think there's more things I'd love to dig into, but I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time on a Friday afternoon to share your wisdom and experience. Thank you, Bob. I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Okay.